0: I want to um, talk tonight um, about transforming suffering into happiness. Sound good? (laughs) And I I want to uh, hopefully explain how that's what you're actually doing here and have been doing here for this whole five days, um, in this practice, that's what we're doing. But I want to um, explain how that works. <clears throat> it's been mentioned a number of times um, about this um, quality of Um, the second foundation of mindfulness uh, known as Vedana. And I'm not sure if the word has been clarified or spelled out here in uh, in the hall, Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, which is the second foundation of mindfulness. After mindfulness of the body, the Buddha then said, Take a look at your experience, and if you look, not even carefully, if you just look with um, some awareness, you will see that every moment has a quality of either being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, otherwise known as neutral. Neutral. And he said, if you can really tune into this, it's a very profound uh, doorway to liberation. And that if you understand a skillful response, not only being mindful of it, but choosing, well, the mindfulness itself helps you choose a wise response, then you are heading in the direction of happiness and well-being. The three roots of suffering, as they're called, you've probably heard these big three, greed, hatred, delusion, otherwise known as attachment, aversion, ignorance, same thing. The three roots of happiness are their opposites non greed, non hatred, non delusion, or non attachment, non aversion, or non ignorance. Those are the three roots or causes. Of happiness Buddhist uh, the Buddha and Buddhist teachings like to put things in the negative it's not this it's not this it's not this see what you have left over <laughs> but there's a more positive way of saying this and I I um, came to a very uh, important understanding in my own practice uh, when in the early days of, uh, of this journey, um, I um, was fortunate enough to spend some time with someone who became my, one of my two main teachers, Ram Dass. Uh I think I mentioned here, I read Be Here Now, and that changed my life. Oh, I'm not alone. And I, I am seeing the possibility of, of freedom. And that was what brought me to, uh, to see him in person and then meet Joseph, my other teacher, my main Dharma teacher, Joseph Goldstein. And um, Ram Das, his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, otherwise known as Maharaji, had um, three instructions, three simple, profound, not so easy, uh, life-changing instructions. Love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. And in my early days of practice, after I, Fell in love with the Dharma. There was an opportunity to um, to practice with in, in an invitation only small uh, small group. Uh, this is in 1975 uh, with Ramdas and Joseph told me uh, about it, and I uh, and I spent the spent the year uh, in this small group, and but it was. It was a Hindu, a kind of bhakti devotional um, approach to practice. And by that time, I had, you know, really uh, the Dharma, Buddha Dharma and mindfulness practice. And and I'd been doing retreats and all was like, okay, I found my path. But there was this, at times it seemed a bit dry and Maharaji just touched my heart, so I I met uh, with Ram Das to see if it was an appropriate thing for me to um, to participate in, and um, and I was there for the year. But they have very devotional practice, and they're chanting and doing, uh, having mala beads and singing, you know, Sri Ram, J Ram, and all of that stuff, which people were getting really high on and excited. You know, For me, it seemed a little sloppy, <laughs> given my Buddhist, I was a Buddhist by that time, <laughs> a Buddhist with a heart, I'd like to say. Uh, and I went back and forth and saying, well, I don't know what my path is, and I would say this to Ram Dass a number of times, am I a I'm a Bhakta, I'm a Buddhist, and I don't know, they both speak to me, and it's hard for me to choose. And he, he would say, don't worry about picking your path, let your path, your path will pick you soon enough. And one day, about maybe five months into this whole process, it dawned on me, okay, Maharaji's instructions are, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God and it was like a light bulb that uh that went on oh love everyone non-hatred serve um serve everyone non-greed remember god another way of saying non-delusion and when that came together in my mind i realized i didn't have to choose I could take what was useful from uh, from each approach. And as the third Zen patriarch says so beautifully in his treatise, Verses on the Faith Mind, he says, There is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. So... I want to get back to this non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, inverting those first two of serve everyone, love everyone, remember God, and see how what we're doing here is, is cultivating those three roots of, of well-being and happiness. I want to go through each one. And with each one, I want to make the um, um, make the point, highlight the point that in every moment that you are mindful, you are cultivating all three of those. Because mindfulness means not grasping at the pleasant, not pushing away the unpleasant. And not identifying with your experience, which very directly opens you to a sense that it's, I'm not running the show, and there's so much something so much bigger that, that I can open up to and trust and surrender. Remembering God, non delusion, seeing clearly the nature of reality. Mm. So, first. Non-greed or non-attachment—another way of saying generosity, letting go. Uh, I know you—you you heard some words on uh, on generosity and and Donna earlier today. And besides the, you know, the Donna talk, which is you know really an important part of of, of our. Uh, livelihood, it is our livelihood here. Besides that, to really understand the power of letting go, especially in terms of the joy of letting go, the full letting go in terms of generosity, which is a letting go that also um, honors and delights in the connection with others. Letting go or non-greed, is really moving from the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is a grasping or attached uh, attitude. This is suffering, the second noble truth. The third noble truth is the end of suffering, which has everything to do with letting go. Letting go of the control that you never had in the first place and opening up and allowing for this moment to be as it is, meeting it with grace and with wisdom and with kindness. That's possible. This is from... I don't... I, don't, I might have, if I said this before, forgive the, pardon the redundancy. This is from Gendon Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open and inviting and comfortable. Nothing to do, nothing to force, and everything happens by itself. You know, we've mentioned relaxation quite a bit through this retreat. I hope that you get, it's not just because we like you to feel comfortable. But in that relaxation, you're counteracting that very deep ingrained habit of holding on. And in that relaxation of that grip, ah, that's letting go into the freedom of an open heart, an open mind. But it's really hard We are so deeply conditioned to hold on. When uh, John D. Rockefeller was the richest person in the world, somebody asked him, how much money will be enough, Mr. Rockefeller? And his response was, just a little more. (laughs) Isn't that creepy? there's no end to that this is from pa uh, from uh, pa payuto a wonderful buddhist scholar who talks about the power of moderation matanuta an awareness of that optimum point when where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of endless desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. Doesn't that make sense? You know, to know when it's just enough and we as a species have to figure this one out because if the disease of more keeps running our idea of happiness and well-being in a, <clears throat> in a finite world with limited resources, I guess where this is heading. So to see, oh, what's the amount that I can feel satisfied, fulfilled, and not need more? And when you have enough, what do you need to do? What can you do with all, this, all the, the good fortune, if you're fortunate enough to have, have prosperity, but to, to give to others? And giving feels really good. I uh, was reminded, we were talking the other day, uh, uh, it came up a story of one of my uh, early days on retreat uh, where um, I saw the power of generosity. Uh, I was doing the dishes at IMS, doing the pots. I had been assigned, not volunteered. I'd been assigned the pot washer and there was like loads of pots. And I just wanted to get to the sittings and practice. Uh, it was really on fire in those days. I had all these pots in the way, and and I was really feeling sorry for myself when out of the staff room comes the manager with a piece of something in aluminum foil, and he looks at me doing what he thought was diligent service, and he said, here, this is for you. I did the pots really quickly with a whole other motivation what's in that? And I did the pots, I did well. There I was on, now I, I had to do them from a place of, of, of service. Okay, I'll do my service here. And then I opened up the, the foil, dried off my hands, opened it up, and there was this big piece of cheesecake with glaze and nuts and like, sent from the heavens, at that point, an extra slice of bread at tea time was a huge deal for me, right? And there was this big, and it was big, so it just seemed like too much to even eat the whole thing by myself. And you, you probably have seen there's a kind of spaciousness and gratitude that, that starts to happen as you, can you keep on doing this practice. So and it was big. So I broke it into um, four different pieces. One for me, and three for some yogi friends. In those days at IMS, they weren't washing the, the your. Own, they didn't put all the dishes through the the sanitizer. You had your own dishes in your own place, so you knew where everybody's dish was. Right. There's not that much else to do on a three-month retreat. You just, you know, oh, that's where so and so's dishes, and I put it in three friends' dishes, one of whom was <laughs> Mr. Cohen, right? And I, I ate my uh, my piece really mindfully. It took about two minutes, three minutes. <laughs> Because I, I was slow, just, mm. and I waited for tea time to see each person with their jaw drop. Mr. Cohen broke his piece and <laughs> put, it, put half in another friend's. And the reason I tell this story is that this is 44 years later. And I still feel connected to five other people through one piece of cheesecake. Because <laughs> that's what, that's how it works. It, the, the, the generosity is our currency of caring. It's just stuff, but you feel connected. Can you think of something in your house, uh, a cup for me, there's a, a cup on my uh, on my uh, bathroom sink that was given to me by my friend Roger uh, at our wedding 40 years ago, every morning. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Francis. You know, Can you think of something that you have a cup, a sweater, or a, some kind of gift that somebody gave to you? And when you use it, you feel that connection. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? So, it's our, our currency of the connection that we have to each other. It feels really good to share. And even more, as we practice and we want to share our good fortune and our caring for the world, a whole other level of generosity, of non-greed, is sharing our caring for this world and for each other. And I want to say just a few words while on on this uh, this topic of the joy of engagement. Your practice is not just for you. If it is for you, I'm gonna reduce my stress. I'm gonna chill out. Right? If that if it stops there, it's very limited. But you probably have seen if you've done this for any length of time, or just in your own heart, how you're moved by giving even more than receiving is a, a line I love. I don't think I shared it in here from Shanti Deva. I shared it in one of the groups. Who uh, Shanti Deva wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, the the Dalai Lama's Bible, basically. And there's this one line that I love. He says, "The miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life." The miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. That's where the real joy and happiness is. As Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology, also said that the real joy is identifying your own gifts and sharing them in a spirit of contribution. So your practice is not just for you. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the premier translator of the pali canon all the thick books the middle length discourses and the connected discourses and you know all there's the thick references uh, of all the buddha's suttas and the, the pali canon as it's been preserved and that's Bhikkhu bodhi who's done most all of those translations brilliant scholar also in the last oh 20 25 years a very inspiring activist who started Buddhist Global Relief that I give to e- every year um, uh, that has raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, hunger, education of young girls in, uh, in, um, uh, um, in underdeveloped countries, and really a very inspiring guy. This is from his essay, a challenge to Buddhists. I read this most every retreat because I think it's so important. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential, attracting the affluent And the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing the Dharma in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. And I would put in planet Earth, which he very much uh, would agree. This is written in um, about 15 years ago. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism I believe it also points in a direction that the Dharma should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. We're at a unique moment in time where my friend Terry Patton, this is one of my signatures. uh, I never, you know, people would have their little sayings at the end of an email, and I never got into that, but I joined the club this past year. <laughs> this is my friend Terry Patton from New Republic of the Heart. Terry is no longer with us. A really beautiful, wise being. If the measure of a human life is a chance to have a significance that extends beyond itself, then we've hit the jackpot. We are alive at game time on the planet when everything we value is genuinely threatened, when it's time for all hands on deck. And another signature underneath that is Belvie Rooks, a beautiful wisdom teacher who was here for one of our climate days, and she said this line that has stuck with me ever since, this is the moment we were born for. Instead of, Oh no, how did we get it? How do I get in this? Another lifetime would have been better. Well, it would have been so... uh huh. This is, this is the moment we were born for. Because we have the medicine. We can see the changes of consciousness that are necessary to come through this metacrisis, as it's sometimes called whether it's climate or inequity, racial injustice, environmental injustice, or all the, all the sorrows of this world that are, that are man-made, human-made, greed, hatred, and delusion. We have the medicine. We understand interconnectedness, that we're all part of a bigger system than m- humans, man, having dominion over earth we understand cause and effect we understand how living in a, in a way that doesn't harm is the real source of happiness we understand a compassionate taking care of instead of exploiting we understand that it's possible to have a vision and an intention So we have the medicine. It's up to us as one of my inspiring, um, inspirational teachers, Julia Butterfly Hill says, this is to be taken as a joyful responsibility. Not gloom and doom or despair, but we have an opportunity to make a difference and to do it from love, and to do it from joy. So, on this first one, non-greed, the joy of not grasping, and of letting go, and even of giving and sharing. Every moment that you're mindful, and not grasping at the pleasant, you're cultivating this non-hatred or non-aversion or love, loving kindness. We've been talking, you know, a lot in in some beautiful ways about the, the Brahma Viharas. We're cultivating it in every moment that there's an unpleasant experience and we are not recoiling, but we are finding the courage and the curiosity and the commitment to open up to the difficult. We're cultivating this capacity to not contract and to open up with friendliness. As the Buddha says, hatred never ceases from hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone. This is an ancient and eternal law. And this is what we're asked to do. Starting with ourselves. You probably have seen the challenge... And hopefully have gotten a glimpse here and there of how powerful it is to see who you really are and actually appreciate how life has manifested through you. And the more you can see that in yourself, the less you are self-centered there's a beautiful teaching, a famous teaching from Zen master Dogen lived in, uh, I think, 12th or 13th century. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. That is to practice. This is your mind body process to study. To study the self is to forget the self. That once you really see who you are, you don't have to be looking around saying, am I okay? Am I okay? And you can forget being so self-absorbed. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. So it starts with getting who you really are. This non-hatred or non-aversion right here. meta for self. And I want to share with you uh, for me um, a a major um, turning point in my own practice. I shared it in one of the groups about seeing who we really are. Um, I was doing a six week period of loving kindness practice and the first week, it wasn't just loving. It was all four Brahma Viharas. But the first week and the first two weeks were on Metta. And, then, and mostly the first week was on Metta for self. I said, okay, I'll do it. You know. And I did it and it was, it was going along okay. By that time, I wasn't giving myself that hard a time. It wasn't great. But it wasn't so bad. Kinda mediocre self-meta, yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Good enough. Yeah. And in the middle of this, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. There was no doubt about it. And I thought to myself, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they saw. And then I said, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And that's when I hit upon this practice that I want to share with you. Some of you probably have have done this with me before. I do it in the Awakening Joy course, but I don't think you can do too much of it. So just close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind someone who you share a really loving connection with. It's just easy and sweet between you. And bring them right into your consciousness. And Maybe they're looking back at you smiling, saying, Oh, thanks for picking me. (laughs) And feel, feel that connection that you share. Just enjoy it for a moment. And now I'd like you to imagine inhabiting their reality and seeing through their eyes who they see when they're with their friend. What touches them about you? Your playfulness, your kindness, your sincerity other qualities that you might have. Take it all in. Why do they enjoy you? And what do they wish for you? Probably for you to see all the goodness that they see. You might imagine what they would wish for you. Oh, I hope you see what I see. And now, let your consciousness move back from their vantage point to come right inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected to those beautiful qualities. And wish yourself well. Do it in first person or second person. May, May I see all the goodness inside. Or may you, and you can say your name, may you see all the goodness, James. May you be really happy. And just let yourself, just give that to yourself. If you could just even get a glimpse of what your friend sees, you can't pretend anymore. Then it's just a matter of keeping on remembering who you really are. Because if you haven't gotten to this really embracing yourself, you're the last one to see what everybody else sees. You see it through the filter of, oh, but I know this crazy mind, or I know this. You don't think They get you, but they get you better than you do, chances are. And if you met somebody who really understood you, who really enjoyed your sense of humor, who really had similar tastes, who really understood your take on life, who really got you, how would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Wouldn't it be pretty neat? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. (laughs) Only one. (laughs) Unfortunately, they're right inside your own body. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, where have you been all my life? (laughs) What a neat human being. So it's time to see what everybody else sees. And the more you see it, the more everybody gets to experiencing all those beautiful qualities. When that happened to me. And I, and I got it. It wasn't that I was some kind of great saint. Holy man. Amazing human being. It was just. You know you're a good guy. That was it. That was all I needed. You know you're a pretty good guy. Who knew? So it starts with getting who you really are and seeing all those beautiful qualities. And from there, then you can also start to see it in everyone else. The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, you know. And sure, some people it's really easy to see, and some people it's not so easy to see. Believe me, I know. (laughs) I'll share with you a teaching I got from a 13-year-old from Trinidad, when uh, Jane and I were invited there to share Awakening Joy to the educational uh, the educators in Trinidad by this person who was very influential, and his daughter, whose name was Lale Anne, said, um, "We ha- we got into having a just really fun time together, all of us." And she said, "Oh, by the way, I'm working on a." on an invention that I I think might lead to world peace. Yes, she caught my attention. I said, tell me about it. She said, well, it's called a perspective helmet. You put it on and immediately you understand the perspective of the person that you're speaking to. I said, if you can figure it out, I'm investing. She said, I'm still working on it a bit. It made so much sense, a perspective helmet, to understand everybody's got their own reality that makes sense to them. Just like you were saying, probably, if everybody saw things the way I see, this would be so much better world. That's what everybody is saying, too. Even the most wounded hard to understand. Everybody's got a reality that makes sense to them based on their causes and conditions and experiences and genetics and all of those things. So that's a big practice to see the divine in everyone. Like they say in Namaste, in in Hinduism, you greet each other. The divine in me sees the divine in you where we're... We're the same. So that's different levels of loving kindness that we can practice in the Brahma Viharas here. There's one other level that I want to share. And that is what got you here or what keeps you coming back. Your relationship to your spiritual life. And again, I want to share another story that uh, if you've been with me before, you probably have have heard on on retreat. Uh, going back to that first year when I was seeing when it, whether it would work for me to be part of that uh, devotional scene that Ramdas was having, and I went to meet him to have a, a conversation, just to see if it, if it fit, because we both knew. I said. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm practicing, you know, Buddha Dharma now, and this is really central to me, but can this work? Can I be part of the class? And he said, we talked for a while. He said, okay, I want to ask you something. I said, he said, uh, you know, this is a devotional scene. How do you feel about Jesus? (laughs) Do you love Jesus? I said, I like Jesus. <laughs> I, he's very inspiring teachings. I don't know if I love him the way I sense you would like me to. And he said, okay. How about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? I like Krishna, (laughs) just that expression of celebration and dancing with life. But I can't say I'm a Krishna devotee. And then he said, all right, well, let me ask you, do you love God? And I said, you know, I was raised Jewish as he was. And whether it was some Jewish kids, uh, whether not Jewish, some uh, Bible kids book, Um, with pictures, but in my mind, God was this really powerful, scary man with a big beard and a book and a pen saying, you're going to have a good day and you're not. So instead of the love of God, I have more a fear of God. But when I hear the word God, I translate it as the Dharma, which to me is like just the perfection of it all, the, the mystery of life. And, and so that makes sense to me. And he said, okay, well, let me ask you, do you love the Dharma? And with that, there was no hesitation. I said, oh, yeah. He said, you sure? I said, absolutely. And he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> I said, really? And he said, I'll say it with you. He said, Go ahead. And I felt completely like a, a jerk in saying, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> and he said, I love you, Dharma. He said, keep saying it. I love you, Dharma. He said the same. And about the third or fourth time, I said it, and I really felt it. I love you, Dharma. At that point, tears started rolling down my cheeks, and he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) You can be in this class. And it's something that we all, I think, would be served by getting in touch with how much, whether you call it the Dharma or practice or the truth or consciousness, how much you've been touched by whatever it is that brought you here. Especially if you've been practicing for a while, you've heard something that you can't ignore. And the more you can get in touch with this sada to put your heart into this rather than just cerebral understanding of ideas, the more juice you have for practice and the more you want to throw yourself into waking up. And so I really invite you to stay connected to how much you're touched by the practice And whether you call it loving the Dharma or whatever words speak to you, stay connected to them. Every moment that you are mm, experiencing an unpleasant moment and you don't shy away or complain or contract, you are cultivating a friendliness and an open heartedness and love. So now we get to non-delusion, which is another way of saying, seeing things clearly, seeing things as they really are. And we talked about this um, a few times. I mentioned it that first uh, talk when I talked about not identifying with experience. There are what are called three distortions of reality, or vipalasas, that the Buddha says when you see through, you really understand the nature of reality. The first distortion is taking what's impermanent to be permanent, not seeing the changing nature of reality, not seeing a Nietzsche impermanence. The second is taking what is a source of suffering to be a source of happiness. That is taking the idea that having more desires gratified is going to make you happy rather than seeing the more you're hooked by desire, the more suffering you are creating for yourself. That's not to say to not appreciate all the good and beauty and, and uh, blessings in your life, but the, the grasping of changing experience, as Joseph Goldstein says, it's like rope burn. Remember, if you were in phys ed and you were going up a rope and then you let go of it fast, ah, it's holding on to that which is changing. So taking what is suffering to be a source of happiness, holding on to changing experience. And the third is taking what is basically a selfless nature of reality you to be some permanent self to whom life is happening instead of seeing as we did the other night the fluidity the selfless nature where you are a process and when you see that you feel connected with all of life And it's not about me. You are part of everything. This is from a poet uh, I love, who I've just discovered in the last few years. His name is Daniel Bayless. He says, you are but a collection of atoms working together in temporary harmony, before being dispersed back into the universe. Your earthly task is to help these atoms radiate. Imagine the simplicity. You need not achieve anything but gently glow. I'll read it one more time. You are but a collection of atoms working together in temporary harmony before being dispersed back into the universe. Your earthly task is to help those atoms radiate. Imagine the simplicity. You need not achieve anything but gently glow. How beautiful! How simple! And maybe you can get a sense of the freedom that comes when you are not so constricted and feeling separate from everything. That's not to say you don't exist. On a relative level, I pinch my skin and you don't feel it. You have your identity and your your, uh, driver's license or ID card. You know, yep, that's me. Uh, And your history and your personality that is uniquely yours, but a temporary coming together of reality. And so, one, you play the game of being you to the fullest, but on another level, you see, it's just the game of life that's manifested through you. And when you see that it's just life manifesting through you, then you don't have to feel so defensive or hoping that everybody will see, Oh, look at me. You can just celebrate your uniqueness, but realize as I like to say, it's yours and not yours. This is from Martha Graham, the wonderful dancer choreographer, saying to Margaret, uh, Agnes de Mille, another great uh, dancer, who she was a mentor for. She says, "There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening." that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It's not your business to determine how good it is nor how valuable nor how it compares to other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. To keep it yours clearly and directly and to keep the channel open. To let life play itself through you. And that is a whole other level of understanding, seeing through delusion. It's just life expressing itself through this form called you. To celebrate it, but to not take it quite so seriously. To watch the movie of your life and play it. Dance with it instead of feeling this is a zero sum game and will i win how could you how could you lose your life and you as one text that i've been hanging out with lately that i, I love this kashmir shiva's a text there you are born You are manifest, you are here for a while, and then you are reabsorbed. What a different way to go through life, to play the game of being you. It's the only movie in town, so you might as well play it to the fullest, but to play it with some lightness, ah, that other perspective makes all the difference. And every time you are mindful and you do not identify with your experience, my sadness, my pathetic loneliness, my self-judgment, my unconditional love, my unconditional love is better than your unconditional love. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. Every time you see reality in the moment that you're mindful and you don't take ownership, there is freedom. The miracle, the magic of awareness. So I read this one last offering from Dana Falls, my favorite Dharma poet. She says, settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief, flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. Awareness, knowing itself by data falls. Every moment that you're mindful, you are transforming what can be suffering through greed, hatred, delusion, into happiness through non-greed, generosity, non-hatred, loving-kindness, non-delusion, seeing clearly. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you very much for your attention. So we'll have, a, as usual, a half an hour for walking, and we'll come back for another sitting. Do you have an offering? And you have an offering? doing something? So um, come back for the last sitting. Enjoy. Yeah, and... You can, you're welcome to to leave. It'll take a little while to to get out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening.